Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this Sabbath day and for this chance we have to be here in this place. Lord, we move on today to love. Paul said the greatest of these is love. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. This is our key passage, and we've been talking about this one this whole fall. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So we talked about how it all begins with faith, and we talked about that, that core faith confession that makes us a Christian. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When you have come to believe that, you have become a Christian. But that statement itself introduces another issue, Son of God. What is the identity of God? Well, that leads us to the second core faith confession, the identity of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So these are the core faith confessions. And there's a third one, but these are the first two we talked about. And then we talked about how without faith it is impossible to please God because we must believe He exists, which is to say we must believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, just like He said, and we must also believe God is the Creator. That's His identity. When we have come to believe those, we must believe He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So at that point, we moved on to hope. And we talked about when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we also believe and know that through his life and death comes salvation to us and forgiveness of sins. And that is a hope. But it's not just the life and death that brings us the hope. It's also the resurrection. So it is the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And Pastor Steve talked to us about resurrection and how in Jesus we are invited to be a part of that. And that is hope. So we have the hope of forgiveness of sin, the hope of the resurrection. And then we also have the hope in the promise that Jesus made, which becomes the third faith statement. If I go, I will come again. We believe it by faith. One day we will see it in reality. And that's called the blessed hope. So these are the hopes that we have. We have the faith and we have the hope. And we've talked about faith and hope so far. But as amazing as those things are, today we're talking about the one that Paul calls the greatest of these. Now next Sabbath, Pastor Tim is going to be here. And I hope today to lay a foundation for what he's going to talk about next Sabbath. But to lay that foundation, we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. And the part I really want to talk to you about is in chapter 12. But you know how sometimes you've got to get the context before you can get the meaning? So we're going to have to actually go back to chapter 11. And I'm going to summarize part of chapter 11 here as we get going. Chapter 11 begins with the story of what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And that's the story of when it's the last week of Jesus' life. And at the beginning of that week, he enters Jerusalem as a king. He's riding on a donkey. They're praising him. They're putting their, uh, their cloaks before him. And everyone is worshiping and shouting Hosanna. And it's a great moment. And this is very symbolic to Israel because this, this meant a king coming into Jerusalem. 
And long had they wanted the king to return to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Not everybody was thrilled to see Jesus coming into the city as a king. And it was just a little too much for a few of them. And in fact, what Jesus was about to do next was going to make it even worse. Because after he came in that way, he was going to go to the temple... And in the temple, he was going to encounter people who were, who were money changers and who were buying and selling on the ground of the temple. What they were doing was they were, they were making money off of the service that God had established for people to learn the lessons of repentance and forgiveness of sin. And Jesus, the king, said no more. And Scripture tells us that he drove the money chambers, the money changers, from the temple when he went in there. Now, as you can imagine, the chief priests and the teachers of the law who considered the temple their domain didn't like that. And Scripture tells us that they sought a way to kill Jesus. You see, they feared Jesus. Because his non-compliance had become a grave threat to their authority. We pick up that, sto- that story in verse 27. It says, they arrived again in Jerusalem. Jesus has come again. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Now, I want you to notice how smart Jesus' answer is in the way he deals with this group. He doesn't just give them an answer that they can just out of hand reject. Because here's the deal. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that doesn't really matter what you say? They're not changing their mind. You're not changing your mind. Kind of a waste of time, right? Well, so Jesus doesn't go down that road. Instead, he responds with a question that they can't answer. Verse 29, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, and this is the best they could come up with, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, you can imagine, they didn't like this answer very well. Because this answer didn't give them what they wanted. And what was it they wanted? They wanted to find a way to either be able to justify getting Jesus killed or find a way to turn the people against him. But Jesus wasn't going to give this to them, at least not yet. And what follows, and this is an early lesson for us, what follows is the reason why it is foolish for any of us to argue with Jesus or try to trick Jesus or try to catch Jesus in his words. Remember this the next time you're tempted to try to outsmart God. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus sort of goes on the offensive, and he lays out a story. Mark chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. 
At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, a quick aside here. We get a little uncomfortable with texts like this in our, well, we'll call it our 21st century sensibility. But I don't think we should get squeamish about the subject of judgment, in particular the notion, the notion of judgment of the wicked. Okay, here's a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not our problem to worry about. God is not asking us to kill anyone. Okay? We're clear on that? God is not asking us to kill anyone. He's not even asking us to figure out who the wicked are. All right? That's his deal. But here's the second point. Judgment is about the establishment of justice in the earth. Now, are you tired of living in a world filled with people who refuse to act justly and live in peace? Are you tired of that? I'm tired of that. But here's what it takes for that to happen. Everybody either has to put their faith in Jesus and begin to live by the core defining and animating principle of the kingdom of God, or they have to be dealt with and taken away so that the kingdom is no longer polluted with those who will not live according to the core principle of the kingdom. Now, it sounds kind of hard, but, but let's remember here that what we're talking about in the parable Jesus just told is people that are beating and killing other people and trying to take from the Lord of the manor that which is rightfully His. Now, when I say this, and this goes back to the larger story, the context in which Jesus said this, I'm not just talking about the ones who are so rebellious that they will refuse to knuckle under to the blatant, blatant oppressors and the doers of evil who stand in danger of eternal judgment. No, the judgment comes also for those who refuse in their hearts to live according to the principles of the kingdom of God, the principles of justice and peace. I'm talking about those who, okay, maybe if you applied enough force to them, they would be sufficiently afraid of that external authority, and they would clean up on the outside for a while. But the judgment has to come based on what's in the heart, not based on what the outward show is. Why? Because the kingdom of God, when it's established in its fullness, will not be about force. It will be about those who want to be in this kingdom, living according to the kingdom principles with joy and peace and love for each other. 
Therefore, it's not enough that the outside looks right. It's got to be the heart. Now, I believe Jesus is making this point. We'll go back to the parable here. Verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now watch the response. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Okay, is, is, is the world safe with people who the only reason they don't grab you and kill you is because they're afraid of the crowd? What are they going to do when the crowd's not there, right? They're the perfect example of what Jesus is talking about here. But yet, despite this defeat that these weren't able to grab him, they haven't given up. So now, now they're going back to their strategy to try to get Jesus in trouble. And here we go. Verse 13, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Does anybody believe they believe what they're saying? Anytime somebody comes to you with that kind of flattery, let me just say, watch out. There's a hook in there. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now their goal in this question is, is twofold here. See, they think they've got the perfect question because maybe that they could catch Jesus saying something against the Romans and then they could accuse him of treason. Or maybe they could force him to make a statement that somehow supports the Romans and then this would drive a wedge between him and the people who hate Roman oppression. We actually have a name for this kind of question in our day. We call it a gotcha question, right? And this is the season of gotcha questions because we have an election coming up, right? And we see this kind of question happen all the time where you ask a question that no matter how you answer it, you're doomed. This is the goal. This is what they're trying to do to Jesus. Verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him a coin and he asked them, whose inscription is this? Uh, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Don't you just love Jesus' answer there? Isn't that wonderful? Now here's the thing. If you're trying to get him, it's not going well for you. No matter what they try to do to knock Jesus down, he just keeps landing on his feet. Or he just steps aside. They, they can't make anything work. But that was the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are standing on the side chuckling to themselves, and they say, ha, Pharisees. So now the Sadducees are going to give it a try. And in the meantime, while they do it, they're going to try to make some points against their arch rivals, the Pharisees. Are you starting to see how ugly everything around Jesus was? Are you seeing this? This is the religious people. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees. 
And they're running around trying to catch Jesus in stupid questions. Here we go, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And now they're high-fiving each other at what an awesome question they asked, right? You remember what I said about the folly of trying to outwit God? Don't even try it. You just make yourself look foolish. So Jesus replies, verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Well, that had to hurt a little, right? Because those are the two things they thought they knew. And now, let me give you a little warning on this next part because I'm going to read you words that are clear enough, but let me tell you as I read them to you, I don't know exactly what this means. And in addition, I don't intend to argue with what Jesus says or, or even try to explain it all. I'm going to leave it for you to take up with him if you're brave enough. But here it is, verse 25. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. All right, so I read that and I'm like, okay, I don't really understand all of that. Because for one thing, I don't know exactly how the angels live. I've never seen that. And I don't know exactly what he means by that. And I don't know what exactly what that last part means where he's talking about the God of the living, even though I understand them to be dead. But here's the thing. Remember this text, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Don't waste your time trying to figure out stuff that is not ours. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. When you have finished following everything clear that God has given you, go ahead and take this on. All right? We don't know everything about eternal life. So let's not be foolish like the Sadducees and go off claiming we do. Because I tell you, me, just for me personally, I don't want Jesus to one day say to me, you were badly mistaken. I'd like to avoid that if I can. But now, so we've been building this up, and you're seeing all of this ugliness and all of this internal motivation of ugliness going on all around Jesus. But now we come to the part in the passage that I actually want to focus on, the part that establishes our theme. And in this interaction, I think you'll be able to identify what the core acting principle of the kingdom of God is. You see, it seems despite all the craziness going on, not everyone in the crowd that day had bad intention in their interacting with Jesus. And even among the teachers of the law, there apparently was still at least one honest heart. Mark 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? 
Now, I'm going to say to you, I don't know if this was a great question to ask or not. I don't know if it, maybe it, it uh, suggested or demonstrated somewhat of a legalistic bias on his part or, or whether the man was truly trying to understand the core principles of the kingdom of God. I don't know for sure where his head was. But I do, based on this story, believe that this question was different. It was not like the entrapment questions everyone else was asking. And I think it was different primarily because of the way Jesus engages this question. It's kind of been, in all of these other things going on, it's kind of like Jesus is in a sword fight and, and they're, they're taking shots at him and he's parrying everything with his answers. But finally he gets a genuine question from a genuine person. And Jesus treats this question as though it's honest and valid. And here's how Jesus answers, verse 29. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that in this answer, Jesus reveals the core acting principle of the kingdom of God. Did you see it? Here it is. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Love is the core basis for action in the kingdom of God. We'll come back to this in a moment, but first, I want you to watch what happens next in this interaction between Jesus and this teacher of the law. Verse 32, well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, first of all, I love what this man says. He says, good answer, Jesus. Well done. And now the concept of affirming Jesus in his answer seems kind of funny to me, you know, because we kind of operate in this default reality that whatever Jesus says, yeah, obviously that's good. But here he is actually saying, wow, good answer, Jesus. And it just strikes me as kind of funny. But you know what? As I thought about that more, I kind of think maybe we ought to spend a bit more time in our lives when we read the words of Jesus in our hearts and minds saying, good answer, Jesus, well done. I can't help but think that if we really love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength, that we would be giving him answers like that a whole lot more often rather than the ones we come up with like, oh, Jesus, do I have to? You ever give that answer? Or... Come on, Jesus, can't you see it my way for once? Wouldn't it be better if we spent a little more time saying, good answer, Jesus? But here's the second thing that I think in this interaction was so powerful. I love that the man doesn't just hear Jesus' words and kind of parrot them back or, or that he doesn't try to turn it into an argument or something, but that he actually thinks about what Jesus has said and takes it to the next level by applying it. Jesus just said the great commandments. And he says, good answer, Jesus. And I paraphrase. He says, well said, teacher. 
love that motivates the heart to do right really is more important than legalistic law-keeping. He says, truly, to love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself is way more important than all these little details in the law. He gets it. And why is it more important? Well, here's what I think. It's more important because love is an endless source of right doing that never runs dry. I think this is what Jesus was getting at in John chapter 7, verse 38. He said, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. When we have a fountain of love in us, good things inevitably come from us. It's not about faking. When you really love someone, good comes out of you to them. And for whatever reason, this teacher of the law got it. He understood. And that response in that moment with Jesus is very powerful. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I love how that ends. There's been all this foolishness going around and, and Jesus batting back the questions. And finally, there's a genuine moment. And everybody sees the power of the moment. And when it's over, they're like, yeah, no further questions. So a couple points here. Come to Jesus with dumb questions designed to trap him or make yourself look good and you can expect that that won't end well for you. You're going to end up looking foolish. But come to Jesus with an honest question and an honest heart and Jesus will honor your inquiry. He'll connect with your heart and he will draw you into his kingdom. But now let's go back for a moment as we close to the answer Jesus gave, the great, greatest commandments. Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So here's what I want you to hear. To love is the greatest commandment. It's the same thing Paul is saying. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, we're commanded to have faith, and that's an incredibly important commandment. But the command to believe in the Lord Jesus is not the greatest commandment. And we're exhorted to have hope, and it's a critical exhortation, and it is the right response to what God through Jesus has done for us. But even the command to hope is not the greatest commandment. Instead, it's love. Love for God and love for each other. Or perhaps we could say it another way in words that we use around here sometimes. A passion for God, a passion for people will lead us to a passion for service. 
Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, and you will serve. It's love, working in the hearts of God's people. It's the only force strong enough to hold together the kingdom of God. And now this is why I've been encouraging you for these last several weeks to be all in. Why I've been encouraging you to take your Bible, read the Bible, spend time reflecting on God, reflect on what Jesus has done for you. Pray. These are ways that you show love to God. And this is also why we've been practicing all year long, practicing saying, these are the people I love. And we haven't done that in a little while, so we're going to need to do that today, right now. I mean, we're talking about the greatest commandments here. So I want you to look around you. Now that means you have to move your head. You're not doing it yet. Here you go. There you go. Look around you. Look behind you. Look at all the people around you. Do you see these people? These are the people I love. These are the people I love. Say it with me. These are the people I love. It's a commandment. This is the husband I love. Very good. Now, Pastor Justin's going to help us as we come to the close today. You see, I believe there is an order in which we're able to love. And there's a reason that the first and then the second greatest commandments come in the order that they come. You see, the key to loving the ones you love is to first love with all your heart and soul and mind and strength the one who first loved you. If you want to be able to say, these are the people I love, you need to love God first. Now, this is not a for show type of love based on a fearful compliance to the threat of judgment because that will never keep a kingdom in order, at least not a kingdom like God wants to create. The only one who will truly be able to love God is the one who has completely yielded themselves to what the kingdom represents. Only the one who desires justice and peace to come will love the one through whom justice and peace comes. And the one who truly loves the one who came to bring justice and peace will then spend their life working out these kingdom principles in everything that they do. If you spend your life trying to get ahead, trying to get power, trying to get control, you are working against the principle of the kingdom. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's kingdom, the one upon whom it's built. Now, we've been talking about faith. We've been talking about hope. And I've asked you, do you have faith in Jesus? And I've asked you, do you have hope in Jesus? But today I'm going to ask you a question even more important than those two. Are you ready? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? with a love that says, Jesus, take me and build my life upon the firm foundation of your love for me. So this is where we close today with this. When you go out today, I want you to love Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, 
and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, we live for you. Holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show. song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Holy, there is no none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Holy, there is no one like you. There is Beside you, open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. I will build my life upon your. I will
put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken oh I will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation and I will put my trust in you So the command, the greatest commandments, both start with the word love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, yes, it's a principle of love. That's love the Lord your God with all your mind. But it's also an emotion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. And you put your strength into what you love, don't you? We have the opportunity in this moment to connect with the love of God, not just with our heads, but with our hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ came and gave his life for you because of his love for you. And he rose again because God had appointed him to be Redeemer to be one of us and to be the first to rise again. He ever lives to make intercession for you now. He loves you with an everlasting love. The first and greatest commandment is to return that love to Jesus. Open up your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Send your Holy Spirit to us right now and break through our walls and our coldness. Break through our legalism. Break through our selfishness. And place within each one of us a fountain of love flowing up first with love for God and second with love for each other. If you put that within us, Lord, it will be our delight to follow any other laws you're calling us to follow. Lord, in this moment, remind us why we became believers in the first place. And if we're lonely or sad, Reveal your love in our hearts. A love that gives us hope and a love that builds our faith. 
Help us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. And help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And also, Lord, bless us and keep us. Make your face shine on us and be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance on us and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.